Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is what we need to learn about ourselves and about You. So we pray, Lord, that You would feed us now with Your Word, that You would strengthen us now with Your Word. Your Word is breathed out by the Spirit and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. All the things of this world will wither and fade, but Your Word will last forever. And so we stand upon it and we ask, Lord, that You would now nourish us and feed us with it. May we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd who laid down His life for us, speaking to us, calling us by name, and feeding us with Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, you might know that we are uh, doing a study in Samuel, which uh, every other week of the month will be, will be continuing. But the first Sunday of every month, we have one foot in the New Testament. Uh, so we have one foot in the New Testament, one foot in the Old Testament, because all of Scripture is God's inspired Word. All of Scripture is, uh, is beneficial and profitable for us. So today we will be continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we will be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I think it would be good for us to maybe remember some of the points uh, that we had made about this sermon that Jesus preached, which spans three chapters of Scripture, three, three chapters of Matthew's Gospel. It's chapters 5 through chapter 7. And the first point that we saw in our, in our first lesson um, on the Sermon on the Mount was that this sermon wasn't just preached to anyone. It was specifically preached to his disciples. Uh, yes, Jesus preached this sermon in a very public location. Uh, it was upon a mountain, uh, which is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, where his voice would actually carry over the people, over the masses of people who had uh, gathered and who were following him and who would have been there on that day. Uh, some of them may have been uh, believing disciples uh, outside of the, the disciples that Jesus had for himself, the, the 12 disciples. Uh, but surely many who were present, and we can assume that Judas Iscariot was present, uh, so many who were present were not actually believers. But the sermon is specifically aimed uh, at those disciples who did believe. And yet we also recognize that there is also a sense in which it's preached to those who did not believe, to those who consider themselves maybe to be very religious or righteous by virtue of their own personal merit, but who did not believe in Jesus, at least not yet. Uh, and we know that this is certainly the case uh, with the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders, they often followed Jesus around to hear what he would have to say and to challenge him in front of others. So there may very well have been some Pharisees and other religious leaders present as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that this is the unregenerate man's natural disposition. That natural man, the natural unconverted man, will consider himself to be morally upright because he has only compared himself to the worst elements that society has to offer uh, in any given society. Or he'll at least figure that his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds, and thus God is in debt to him and owes him salvation. This is the natural, unregenerate man's disposition. But if a person is honest, if an unbeliever is honest with what they hear in the Sermon on the Mount, they'll find it to be a bar that is set 
impossibly high. If a person attempts to scale a mountain, uh, the, the mountain that the Sermon on the Mount sets before him, he will soon realize that he has better odds of swimming to the deepest depths of the oceans on earth or, or of pole vaulting himself to Mars than he does of living up to the standards set by the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, those are things that man cannot do, um, at least not yet. And even if he ever does do things like pole vault to Mars, it would have to be with a lot of technological assistance. But even then, it's not exactly within the realm of possibilities to consider himself capable of doing those things on his own. He can't. And likewise, the natural man, the unregenerate, unconverted man, will find himself to be completely inadequate, completely incapable of living up to the standards that the Sermon on the Mount sets forth. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, function as something of a mirror to show people how, how far they fall short of His standard. It's a mirror to show people their need for this new life that Jesus speaks of that is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. And so with that said, a second point that we made in the introduction is, uh, is worth being reminded of, and that is that the Sermon on the Mount is really a manifesto for Christian living. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, likens the Sermon on the Mount to a manifesto that outlines the values of God's family, uh, the family values that a person should embrace and put into practice once they have been adopted by grace into the family of God. But you might say, okay, if we're unable to do that, then how can this be a manifesto of the Christian ethic? How are we to do that if, if, if man by nature is unable to do it? And the answer is, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. We saw in our introduction that one of the reasons that Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit to take up residence within His people is so that we may live out the ethic presented in the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, this is a theme that we find throughout Scripture. We see God telling the prophet Ezekiel of how He would remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and that He would put his Holy Spirit within us, which would cause us to walk in accordance with His statutes and precepts. Uh, we see God telling the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Why would God do that? Why would God put His Spirit within us? Why would He put His law within us? It's because we are utterly incapable of embracing the values of God's family without these things happening. And not only will we fail to embrace them, we will absolutely fail to live up to them. But we've seen that the Sermon on the Mount was preached in the region of Capernaum, and that by sitting down to preach, Jesus was actually fulfilling prophecy from Malachi, uh, many had followed him because he was doing miracles, uh, but this was an opportunity with so many people following him, this was an opportunity for him to teach them and to preach to them, and thus Jesus preached this historic sermon. Now, as we'll see in just a moment here, Jesus began by preaching what we refer to as the Beatitudes. You've probably heard of the Beatitudes, but maybe you're not exactly sure what a beatitude exactly is. Uh, the word beatitude is actually derived from the Latin word beatus, which simply means blessed. Uh, a beatitude, therefore, is simply a pronouncement of God's blessing on a person. And of course, uh, we don't only find beatitudes, we don't only find these pronouncements of blessing uh, here in Jesus' sermon, we also find them throughout Scripture. We find them, for example, Psalm, uh, chapter, Psalm 1, verse, uh, verse 1 starts out with, Blessed is the man. This is, again, a beatitude. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
It's a blessing, it's a pronouncement of God's blessing to not be counted among those who do those things. Uh, Psalm 32, likewise, it kicks off with two Beatitudes from the outset of the the psalm, uh, starting in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then in verse 2, we read, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, We find these pronouncements of blessing elsewhere. Of course, what does it even mean to be blessed? Well, it is the opposite of being cursed. We understand that much. And maybe when we start to understand that, we start to understand uh, that the concept of blessing was actually covenantal language. When God called Abram, for example, he promised to bless Abram by bringing forth a nation from him, and he promised to make Abram a blessing to others, blessing those who blessed him and cursing those who cursed him, so that through Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Uh, That was the Abrahamic covenant, filled with pronouncements and promises of blessing, Uh, When the law of Moses had been given to the Hebrew people, we see in Deuteronomy 28, uh, verses 1 to 14, all of the covenantal promises and pronouncements that God made to the people to bless their obedience to Him. If you you obey me, these are the blessings that you'll receive. But then we see in verses 15 to 68, which is obviously a much longer section, we read of the terrible curses that would follow disobedience. And so with this much understood, we should see that the way to be blessed is to walk in fellowship with God. And that when we don't walk in fellowship with God, when we don't walk in obedient uh, fellowship with Him, we have no reason to think that we will be on the receiving end of His blessings. Sinclair Ferguson notes this. He says, therefore, that, quote, the Beatitudes do not focus on what we are to do. Rather, they describe the blessings, the covenant grace and joy that belong to those whose lives show the marks of the kingdom of God, end quote. And so with that said, what exactly are these marks of the kingdom of God that we find in the Beatitudes? Well, there will be a total of eight of them. We'll do them, you know, cover them one at a time. Uh, but we find the first mark, the first beatitude, the first pronouncement of blessing uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where we read Jesus say this. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus places before us here is a unique, a distinct, a characterizing quality uh, that can't be found in any person on their own. And with that said, this is like a wall being built around a city, a wall that is too tall, uh, too dangerous to be scaled by even the most seasoned and skilled climber that you could find, even the most seasoned and skilled climber in all of human history. If such a person can ever be said to have existed, this first beatitude, if they were to attempt to scale this proverbial wall, it would send them crashing down, falling to certain death. If the city within the walls could be said to be anything, it would be the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You can't get in on your own. I can't get in on my own. Nobody gets in on their own. And anyone who tries will undoubtedly experience certain failure. And yet this wall must be scaled to even get to the next beatitude in verse 4. But one of the things that we need to understand as we go through the beatitudes is that there is actually kind of a, a logical sequence to them. Uh, There's a systematic order to the way that they are presented. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, quote, There is, beyond any question, a very definite order in these Beatitudes. Our Lord does not place them in their respective positions haphazardly or accidentally. There is what we may describe as a spiritual, logical sequence to be found here. End quote. And so this Beatitude serves as something of 
a gatekeeper, if you will. You might say it's a gatekeeper, which means that nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody gets into the kingdom of God except through this beatitude. It's the key that will open the passage to all the other beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But what that means is that everyone who belongs to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven, is by necessity poor in spirit. And there are no exceptions to be found. Absolutely none. Every other mark and every other blessing are a consequence. All the other beatitudes are a consequence, a good and blessed consequence, of having this one, of having this mark in your life, this characteristic in your life. And you have a better chance of coming out alive from a cage with 5,000 angry mama grizzly bears uh, than you do of scaling this beatitude by your own power and your own ability. So if you're thinking about even trying, please reconsider. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does that mean? What does it even mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I'll start by giving you the short answer and then we'll look at the long answer. The short answer is that being poor in spirit is an emptying of self and subsequently a filling of God. An emptying of self, a filling of God. That's what Jesus meant by this. And we cannot be filled with God unless we are first emptied of self. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the short answer for what it means to be poor in spirit. And yet hopefully you see that the short answer by itself, it falls far short of being satisfactory because all it does is, at least in my mind, all it does is it raises a lot more questions like, how do I do this? How do I become poor in spirit? Because I want more than anything to be a a citizen of God's kingdom. And yet I have to do this. And you're telling me that natural man can't do this. So how do I do this? And that's a very important question. And I urge you not to leave here today without having asked yourself that question and understood the answer that Jesus is telling us here. So we'll see the answer before too long. But to get there, we need to start with the long answer for what it means to be poor in spirit. The first thing we need to understand is to to reiterate, this isn't something that you can do or that I can do. Not on our own. In fact, it's the very opposite of our natural inclination as human beings. Our natural inclination, and we see this everywhere we look, is to exalt ourselves. And it's impossible for us to do otherwise on our own. That is our nature. Man's nature is, I am number one. I will protect myself at all costs. The moment we begin to think that this is something that we're capable of doing on our own, we reveal that we have utterly misunderstood it from top to bottom. Because what this beatitude condemns is the the I-can-do-anything Uh, Anything I want, independent, self-sufficient attitude that characterizes humanity by nature. But we actually see a vivid, a very good example of what being poor in spirit is not actually at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says this of when he returns to judge the living and the dead. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? That's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. And of course, Jesus follows that up by saying that He will say to those people, depart from Me. I never knew you. What Jesus is telling us about there is how when some people stand before the Lord in judgment one day, they will appeal to their own merit. They will appeal to all of the things that they did. 
I have done this. Lord, how can you not let me in? Lord, Lord, consider all the things that I have done. I did this. I did that. And hey, those things count for something, don't they? Don't my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? And the answer is no. No, they don't. No, your good deeds don't count for anything. They are filthy rags in the sight of God. Because their hope, the hope that these people have, is in themselves, in their own merit. As they pursued their own desires and and hoped in themselves, they obviously did not even do God's will. That's why Jesus says, he's contrasting here, he says, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Am I saying that a person who prophesies in Jesus' name or casts out demons in Jesus' name or performs many miracles isn't doing the will of God? Not necessarily. But in the case of these people, the point is that they were trusting in their own merit. They were trusting in their own deeds and they were not doing the will of God. They were doing these things, all these things that they rattle off here, they were doing them as a grounds for them to stand on before God on Judgment Day. And thus these things were not done for the glory of God at all. In fact, they were done for the glory and for the false assurance of fallen man. No, this poverty in spirit that Jesus is talking about in verse 3 in Matthew chapter 5, this poverty in spirit is unlike anything that natural man can do by himself or would appeal to as a reason for God to justify him. He, he doesn't plead with God, again, saying, Lord, Lord, am I not poor in spirit? Poor, poor enough for you to let me into your kingdom? No, the natural man would never boast in any type of poverty because the natural man's uh, disposition, his, his natural way of thinking would only imagine that it's blessed to be rich in spirit and to be prosperous in spirit. To be strong in spirit. Now, to be poor in spirit is entirely opposed to the way, not only that the unregenerate man thinks, but that the world as a whole thinks. Now, some would say that the Lord Jesus is telling us uh, to do the same thing that he told the rich young ruler to do when he instructed the young man in Matthew chapter 10, verse 20 go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. That instruction, we should note, was not given to all of the disciples. It was only given to the rich young ruler. Why? Because the rich young ruler was an idolater, and his God was his riches. Uh, It was only given to him, and he was just another perfect example. The rich young ruler was a perfect example of what it means to not be poor in spirit. Why do I say that? How is he the antithesis of what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount? The answer to that is revealed in the conversation that he had with Jesus in which he boasted that he had kept all of the commandments from his youth onward. Somebody who is poor in a financial sense might make that argument, but somebody who is poor in spirit would never boast of such a thing because it is the furthest thing from truth. It's actually not true at all. The fact is that the man who is financially poor is no closer to being poor in spirit than the man who is financially wealthy by nature. So no, this isn't saying uh, you need to be financially poor. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And maybe this brings us closer to an understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. I I hope that as we consider the claim that the rich uh, young ruler made, uh, we see how prideful it was. His attitude toward himself, it it was very prideful. It It was almost arrogant. His perception of himself was not the same perception that God had of him. And this has everything to do with what it means to be poor in spirit. Not his financial status, but his attitude his perception toward himself. He was filled with himself. He was prideful. So pride. 
is what is antithetical to being poor in spirit. Now the world is celebrating pride this month, which tells us everything that we need to know about the current state of the world. If we understand what God's feelings toward pride are. There are many things of which we can say, well, you know, the, the Scriptures aren't exactly clear on this issue or, or that issue, but the issue of pride is not one of those things that we can say Scripture is not clear about. Scripture is clearer than the clearest pane of glass in the world on this issue. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate, says the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. God is opposed to the proud. We read in both James 4, 6 and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. But what a, what a timely reminder. What a blessing to remember these things and to have this beatitude set before us as we begin the month in which the world celebrates what God hates. And to be prideful about sexual immorality really tells us where we are as a culture. But this is how opposed to the ways of God the world is. And no less can be said about the natural unregenerate man. We, we've, all, we've all been there. But given the way that everyone on the broad road that leads to destruction is celebrating something that God hates, that being pride, and given the fact that pride is exactly the opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit, we should see two things. First of all, we should see how cursed the world's ways are. This is exactly why the Scriptures warn us against not only worldliness, but about being friends with the world. You can't be friends with the world and be a Christian. Our lives actually need to be cleansed of worldliness. It's because the person who has received God's grace, the person who has savingly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot be living with the same attitudes and the same values that those who live in defiance and rebellion against God also embrace. Our values are actually diametrically opposed to the values of the world around us. So you can't be friends with the world. To make yourself friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. But secondly, the second thing that we should see is we should understand that poverty in spirit is not only not valued by the world, not embraced by the world, but it is thoroughly hated by the world. It is absolutely despised and detested by the world. The world wants to hear nothing about poverty of spirit. Absolutely nothing. Because the world sees no value in being poor in spirit, in being humble. And yet the Scriptures would tell us that there is actually no virtue higher than humility. The world wants to hear a message that's actually going to, to, to elevate them, exalt them, build up their self-esteem. They want a message that says, you can do it. If you can dream it, you can be it. Just believe in yourself, says the world. You need to love yourself more, says the world. Self-love is not the answer, it's the problem. But this is the attitude that is pervasive to the world's ways of thinking. Whereas Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, 26, He says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Now when He says that, He doesn't mean hatred as in animosity toward. No, we're still told to honor our parents, for example. What he means is you cannot be the idol that's sitting on the throne of your heart. You have to dethrone yourself to be his disciple. You don't need to love yourself more. That's the problem. You love yourself too much. No, you need to love yourself less. And you need to love the Lord your God more. 
Yes, this, this gets us a little bit closer to an understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. The self, the ego, the, the self-esteem, all these terms that we use these days for basically the same thing. The self is not seated at the throne of the person's heart who follows Jesus. The self has been dethroned. The moment it tries to reclaim that throne, the person riots and wars against his own heart, against his own pride, his ego, because his desire is that he would have no other gods before Yahweh, including himself. The idolization of self-esteem in our culture, in our generation, has led to the deepest depths of depravity that you can ever find in a culture. The individual is convinced that anything he finds offensive is intolerable, insufferable, including truth. And so we develop this ridiculous concept of personalized or, or relative or subjective truth. Your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth, their truth, whatever. When the fact is there is no such thing as relative truth. And actually my old professor in seminary used to keep a $10 bill in his pocket for any student who could give him an example of relative truth and nobody ever could. That bill just stayed there for years. There is no such thing as relative or subjective truth and we need to remember that it is better it is more blessed to be wounded by the truth than it is to be comforted by lies. And so now we see that being poor in spirit is antithetical to concepts such as pride, independence, self-confidence, and self-reliance, at least in a spiritual sense. Unlike pride, poverty of spirit leads a person to despise their sin. To despise all the idols that compete with Jesus for their heart. And to humble themselves before the Lord. Unlike independence, poverty of spirit says, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the ability to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven on my own. Unlike self-confidence, poverty of spirit doesn't look to merit and it doesn't look to ability within oneself. In fact, it sees an utter absence of merit and ability within oneself. And unlike self-reliance, poverty of spirit would cause us to say, I understand that I have absolutely nothing to offer to God whereby He would ever, ever be indebted to me in any way. He must provide what He requires in order for me to become a citizen of His kingdom. Let me tell you what else being poor in spirit does not mean. It doesn't mean that we become timid. It doesn't mean that we become cowardly. As we consider the lives of each one of the disciples who went on to become apostles, we see that they weren't timid or cowardly at all. Not in any sense. In fact, they are actually the very opposite. They are bold. They are brave. As they go forth preaching the news that Jesus the Messiah had come, had died, and had risen again. And they were risking their lives by doing it. And as the ultimate and perfect sinless man, of course, Jesus was anything but timid or cowardly. No, humility isn't afraid of doing what is necessary. And humility is really the virtue that we're talking about here. The most important virtue in all of Scripture. Humility is kind. Humility is, is loving and gentle. It's meek. But humility doesn't nullify humility doesn't negate one's duty to speak and act righteously and truthfully humility doesn't seek conflict but it seeks to resolve conflict in an amicable peaceful gentle truthful manner we have all these para ministries out there these days which demonstrate this tendency to resolve cultural conflict in a truthful manner, but not necessarily in 
a gentle or amicable manner, where they exalt themselves and speak very aggressively, very boisterously. And this is not glorifying to God because it's not a demonstration of poverty of spirit. At the same time, we must guard against going to actually the, the, the other end, the other end of the spectrum, the other extreme, where we're actually self-deprecating. Pride is such an awful thing, it can even look like that. Because the point is still, hey, look at me. Look how awful I am. Look how depraved I am. Look at what a wretched sinner I am. It's still prideful and self-exalting. Consider Paul. When he went to Corinth, he didn't seek to draw attention to himself. He didn't speak boisterously against a culture that hated God. Instead, as he wrote to them, he said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. From 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He tells us of how when he preached to them, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, as my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. to What Paul's saying here is that he had no confidence in and of himself persuading anyone to believe his message. He didn't come across as an eloquent speaker. No, he went before them in weakness, fear, and trembling. How many of you feel that way when you even start to think about evangelizing? Have you ever considered that Paul felt the same way, but that it, did, but that it didn't prevent him from preaching the good news? It actually gave him confidence in evangelizing. Not confidence in himself, but confidence in God because he knew that the power of God would be seen in them believing even though he himself was not a persuasive speaker. Their, their conversion, therefore, couldn't be attributed to him having smooth speech or him being you know, extremely intellectual. No, it could only be attributed to the power of God as it works through the preaching of the gospel. And we know that faith comes by hearing. So let us then see that being poor in spirit means putting confidence in God rather than in anything else, including ourselves. And let's consider how we see this portrayed in so many biblical characters from the, the Old Testament to the New Testament. The first character that comes to mind for me, anyway, when I think of an Old Testament character who was poor in spirit, uh, where, where that was clearly seen in him, is Isaiah. Uh, he was given this vision of, of God, of, of Yahweh on his heavenly throne, and the seraphim were all crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for just one minute. And think about what you would have done if you would have seen just that much. You might think to yourself, I, I would have joined in the chorus. I, I would have joined them in singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But no, all Isaiah could think of was, oh no, I'm standing before God and I am cursed. That's what it means to say, woe is me. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. He thought he was over and done with. He's standing before the Lord in the presence of God with unclean lips. He, he knew that he was unworthy of being in God's presence. More specifically, he knew that his sin, he knew that his unclean lips rendered him worthy of only receiving God's wrath if he were to stand in God's presence. And that, my friends, is poverty in spirit. It wasn't that he had a negative, self-deprecating view of himself. Rather, it was that he had an accurate and truthful view of himself in comparison to God. 
It says he would write later in Isaiah 57.15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That summarizes poorness, poverty of spirit perfectly. The same could be said of, of Moses, who when, when God uh, appeared to him in the burning bush and commissioned him to go tell the Hebrew people that God was going to be delivering them from slavery to the Egyptians, all that Moses could think to say, he's not saying, yippee, it's about time. Instead, he's saying, oh no, he's sending me and I'm not worthy. He's thinking, I can't, I can't do this. What's going to happen when the Israelites, when the, when the Hebrew people don't believe me? God, don't you know that I'm not a smooth talker? I'm, I'm slow of speech. I'm, I'm slow of tongue. He's coming up with every excuse in the world because he doesn't feel worthy of representing God before the people. Or consider David and his poverty of spirit. God came to him and made a covenant oath with David. He, he vows this. He says, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on earth. And by the way, that's what David should have been saying to God. God he should be the one saying, God, I will, I will make you a great name. I will make your name known around the world. But God says to him, I will make you a great name, David, like the names of the great men who are on earth. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever what grace what unmerited favor and what's David's response his response in verse 18 2 Samuel chapter 7 he says who am I O Lord God and what is my house that you have brought me this far He's humble. He's poor in spirit. In the New Testament, we see the boldest and the brashest of the disciples. You already know exactly who I'm talking about. Simon Peter, you see him realize upon meeting Jesus and understanding for the first time who Jesus is, he realizes he's standing in the presence of God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his response is to instantly fall to his knees and plead with Jesus, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. If anybody of the disciples in the entire Bible, we don't even need to limit it to the disciples, if anybody in the entire Bible had been self-confident, independent, self-reliant, boastful, it would have been Peter. Those are all good physical qualities for a fisherman to have, but they are not good spiritual qualities for anyone to have. But even Peter learned what it means to be poor in spirit. How did he learn that? By failing. By failing miserably and by being lifted up once again by God's grace. The same bold and brash Peter that we read of in the Gospels, he continued to be bold but not brash by the time he wrote his epistles. Or consider John the Baptist. He summarizes poverty of spirit very well. His attitude toward Jesus was best summarized when he said of Jesus, He must increase. I must decrease. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. It entails not only a diminishing sense of pride, but also a growing hatred of the pride that is so natural to us. But it's not something that we can do ourselves. It's not something that we can cause to happen to ourselves. Where then does it come from? How can we have it? How can we exemplify? How can we demonstrate this quality and have it in our lives? And the answer is seen in the stories of all these men in Scripture. We gain it by losing ourselves. We gain it by setting our gaze not upon ourselves, not upon our fellow man, not upon our favorite things in the world. No, we gain it by setting our gaze upon Christ. Where we become aware of our complete, utter nothingness in comparison to Him. 
Like Paul said when he wrote to the Philippians, we, we too, we must see that it is nothing, absolutely nothing to be intelligent before God, to be wealthy before God, to be powerful before God, or before men. All those things are absolutely rubbish, Paul said. If we have all those things and yet do not have Christ. When we gain Christ, when we gain Him, we see that everything that we might lose as a result was rubbish to begin with. It was garbage. It was waste. If anything, those things were just cheap, dumb idols. Obstacles that slowed our trusting wholly in Him. To be poor in spirit is to have an intense, keen awareness of our desperate need for mercy and grace with God. It is to say, as we sing in the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Friends, do you know what it is to have this poverty of spirit? And I don't mean up here. I mean in your experience. I mean, are you poor in spirit? How do you see yourself in comparison to God? What merit do you stand on in His presence? What have you to boast of? What a blessed thing it is to know that we have no merit, absolutely none, in His presence but the merit of Christ who lived a perfect sinless life and died the death that you and I so truly deserved so that His righteousness would be imputed, would be credited to us and we could stand in His robes of righteousness and that our sin would be credited to Him so that He would be in our filthy rags. What a blessed thing it is to understand that that's all we can plead with God. What a blessed thing it is to boast only of His grace, that by His grace He has filled us with faith in Christ as a means of justifying us, of declaring us innocent. Puritan Thomas Watson, he put it this way. He said, quote, pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. End quote. Friends, let that not be said of you. Let that not be said of you. The way to cast your pride away and become poor in spirit is to look at God. Set your gaze upon God. Read His law. See what His law requires. See how far you fall short of what He requires. But look at Him again and see how He provides what He requires in sending His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to Himself. And hear Him inviting you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. Amen. See that your pride has been your mortal enemy all along. And see the absolute, utter worthlessness of it. Because if you see these things with understanding, your pride will be dealt a death blow by His grace. By His grace, you will be made poor in spirit, emptied of pride, and filled with faith in Christ. And suddenly, you will find yourself on the other side of this unscalable wall. Not by your own power, not by your own ability, not by your own merit, but by God's doing, by His grace entirely, now as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven which will now be yours. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the way that this one verse, this one single verse, shows us how undeserving we are of your grace and your mercy how undeserving we are to be citizens of your 
kingdom. But we thank You that by Your grace, You've humbled us. You've emptied us of self. And You have filled us with Your Holy Spirit. That we may walk according to Your statutes and precepts. That we may glorify You in all of our ways. Our Father, we confess to You that we still fall short. And yet we remember that Your grace is always sufficient. Thank You for sending Jesus who exemplified this quality of poverty in spirit. And as we imitate Him, O Lord, teach us, indeed force us if You must, to empty ourselves of pride and to walk humbly before You as Your servants who exist to glorify You and to enjoy You forever. Teach us to do these things, Lord, that are so contrary to the flesh, that are so contrary to the culture around us. And teach us to do these things for the glory of Him who shed His blood to cleanse us of every sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus.